to look once again at Luke. And as I've said, over those next several weeks as we lead up to Easter, in order for us to get to Easter on time, uh, the, uh, the Luke passages will be a little bit longer. Uh, and so that is certainly what we are seeing today. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 26. And so I invite you to hear these words. Luke writes this. One day as he, being Jesus, was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priest and the scribes came with the elders and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question and you tell me. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Then Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went away for a long time. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants in order that they might give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Next, he sent another slave. That one also they beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third. This one also they wounded and threw out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, heaven forbid. But he looked at them and said, what then does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the scribes and the chief priests realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they Feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be honest in order to trap him by what he said and then to hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you are right in what you say and teach, and you show deference to no one, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful for us to pay tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose head and whose title does it bear? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then give to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. 
And they were not able in the presence of the people to trap him by what he said. And being amazed by his answer, they became silent. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do pray that you would be with us in this beautiful morning. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that we might hear these words in a way, perhaps even, that we've not quite seen them before. That in so doing, Lord, you might help us to make sure that we are on the path to which you desire us to be. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, have been acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. All right, well, like I said, this is a lengthy passage. I don't really have nearly as much time as I might like to talk about it. So let me be very blunt by simply saying that clearly these religious leaders have lost their way. They've missed the God who is right there in their midst. In fact, they've missed it so much that now they will want even to kill this presence of God, that they of all people, as the religious leaders, we would have hoped that they would have been the first to see. They're trying to trap Jesus. They try to pigeonhole him, of course, and so they ask this question about John the Baptist. But Jesus, knowing what it is that they are up to, he simply asked them another question. Tell me more about, well, actually they asked about the authority, I should say, sorry. And so he says, tell me more. Tell me why exactly it is or whether or not you feel like John the Baptist's baptism, was that actually from heaven or was it from the earth? Now, this is kind of interesting. One of the things when it comes to religious leaders that I feel like we need to do is we need to give them at least a little bit of, of credit. One of the things that they're wanting to do, it feels like actually a very simple and, and proper thing, is it, they want to know by what authority he's doing what it is that he's doing. I get this, you know, several years ago now, probably seven or eight years ago, I was out in the gathering space before worship. Uh, I think actually worship had already begun. And a gentleman whom I had never seen before, he came up, he had a coat on and a hat on, and he, he came up and he said, are you the pastor? And I said, I am. And he said, great. He said, I have a word from the Lord that I want to tell the congregation. And I said, oh, <laughs> do you? He said, yep, I have a word from the Lord, and I'm ready, to, I'm ready to tell it. I said, so you want to come up front? Let me just get this straight, and you want to grab a mic, and you want to be able to tell the congregation this, this word from the Lord. And he said, yes. And I said, I got to tell you, I don't think that's going to happen today. I said, I don't, I don't think that we're, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to do that today. You know, I'm sorry. You know, I don't, I don't really know you. And, and he was not very happy with this. In fact, he kind of just kind of in a very gruff manner, he put his hat on, back on again, and he, and he kind of stormed off outside, uh, out, out the church building. Now, my guess is that, that maybe, I don't know this for sure, but maybe you would think as a pastor that was probably the right thing to do. Right? I don't really know him. Now, again, in some traditions, in the tradition in which I was raised, they very likely might have, you know, let him just come in and speak to it. And maybe it was. Maybe I missed the mark. 
But it is a part of Pastor Scott and my job, right, is to make sure that whatever is happening up front here, that we kind of are familiar with it and know what it is that's going to be said. And so in that sense, of course, I want to give a little bit of credit, a little leniency to these leaders. But at the same time, what's fascinating is to see the discussion that they had with one another. I love this kind of inside view. Because Jesus just simply asked, tell me about the baptism of John the Baptist. And what's interesting, of course, is that in this conversation, at no point does it seem like they really are just saying, well, let's just kind of tell him what we think. Let's just kind of tell them what we believe. No, what do they say? They say, well, oh my goodness, if we say, you know, that it's from earth, people will wonder why we didn't get behind them. But if we say that it was from heaven, uh, then the people will, uh, I flipped it. This is, I just want to make sure you guys are paying attention. You guys are already mumbling. Yes. Either way. Okay, either way, it's not right. What they're doing is they're talking to each other about what exactly are the people going to think? What is going to happen to us if we tell Jesus the truth? And so they, can, they completely, they completely miss out on what is actually genuine and true. They completely miss out on the whole question and they may not even be mindful that they have done it. They may not even been mindful of the fact that they have not actually answered the question that Jesus asked or even deliberated on it. Their only wonderings were what is going to happen to us and what will the people So then, of course, we get down further and we see this whole question around the coin. And again here, this would have been very easy when they say to Jesus, hey, tell me, you know what, what should we do with the Caesar? Should we, should we pay taxes or not? Now, Jesus easily, of course, you know, he could have said, even from there, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. But he doesn't do that, right? We've talked about this passage before. Instead, he says, you know, show me a coin. Let me see this coin. And so they, they show him this coin. And in so doing, he does two things here. One of the things, of course, is he, I think he's subtly reminding them that just as this image that is on the coin is Caesar's, that when he says give to God what is God's, he is trying to remind them that the image that is upon them, of course, is the image of the Almighty, the image of the one who created him. But the other thing that Jesus does when he does this, as Dale Bruner points out, is he causes their hypocrisy to be revealed because they pull this coin out from what they have. They're touching this coin, and they should not have been, according to their own rules, touching this coin from Rome, this Roman coin. And so all of a sudden what they're doing is they are displaying their hypocrisy, and they may not even know it. They don't actually care again about the question that Jesus is asking. No, no, no. Rather, they have completely distorted everything so that all they're trying to do now is figure out how they can get rid of this Jesus. And they don't realize that they are, by doing so, giving up on their own things that they said that they valued and that they deemed is important. Now, the reason why I bring that up this morning is not so that we can sit here and just find ways that we can make fun of these religious leaders. The question that I've been asking this week is this. How did they get where they are? 
I have a hunch, and you can disagree with me, I have a hunch that when these young men, and they would have all been men, when they were young, when they were boys or in their teen years, that they did not say, I hope one day I can become a religious leader who misses God completely and who wants to ultimately kill someone named Jesus. Something tells me that these religious leaders did not begin from this place where they hoped someday that they would be able to completely misunderstand who God is. The question then that I've begun wondering this week is this, how did they reach this place? How do we reach a place where we completely miss God and we may not even realize that we are here? Which brings us to this interesting parable that Jesus tells. Now, thankfully, this parable is much easier than the last couple of parables that we've been doing. It's very straightforward. Unlike many other parables in Scripture, this one probably is kind of an allegory. By that, I just mean it kind of, you know, it takes one person from a parable, and you can clearly see that's who this is in real life. And this person or character uh, uh, from a parable, and okay, that's who this is. It starts in a vineyard and with an owner, right? And the owner most would suggest to you is, of course, God. And he has this, he has this vineyard, right? And, and so he plants these things. He's the one who's done all this work, kind of the creator, if you will. And then he gives it to the tenants, to those who are supposed to steward over it, right? And a lot of times we've seen of late that uh, we talked about this uh, probably last week, uh, especially that, that Jesus is longing to kind of give people, right, to give the church, to carry on this message, to, to kind of tend this field, if you will. So he gives it to these, to these tenants. These tenants, uh, God would say, are the religious leaders, right? But now the religious leaders, it's probably also all of us, but they have this assignment to take care of what God has given to them. Well, the season comes when God, when the owner is ready to kind of, you know, harvest, the harvest has come. And so he's ready to come and, and take his part of that. And so he sends a slave. And the first slave goes and the, uh, they say to themselves, you know what? The tenants do. We like having this. Fruit. We've worked really hard for this. We don't want to give this away. And so they beat up the slave and they say, no, run along. So the, the owner says, okay, I'll send another slave. And this time they send the slave. And this time they both beat him up and they insult him, we are told, and send him along his way. So he sends a third slave. And this time they, we're told they wound the slave and send him back. Most would suggest that these slaves are, are the prophets, the prophets that have been sent again and again to God's people. And again and again, God's people are always rejecting those prophets. So finally, the owner says, I'm going to send my son. Now, who's the son? You guys are so good. And what's interesting is it's not just son, it's the beloved son, the same word, the same verbiage earlier in Luke that God uses whenever, God, whenever John the Baptist has baptized Jesus. So he sends the son. And at this point, all of a sudden, these tenants think, you know what? Not only do we not want to give him this produce, not only any, we want to own this. We're tired of renting. We're ready to own it. We're going to kill him. And so they take him outside the vineyard, we told, and they kill him 
Interestingly enough, of course, in several days, they will take Jesus outside the city and he will be killed there. One of the things that's kind of fascinating, actually, is that Jesus tells this whole parable and uh, the, the religious leaders are mad because they know it's about them. And yet the parable's not actually finished in the sense that they hadn't actually yet been a part of Jesus' death. Like, they're mad about this parable, but then they go ahead and live into it anyways. Which I find very fascinating. So sure enough, he dies, right? And so we have this fascinating little parable right here in the middle of these two stories between the authority and John the Baptist and giving to Caesar what is Caesar and to God's what is God's. There's lots that you can do with this parable. But this time, kind of because we brought it all together in one passage, what I was most struck by is what Alan Culpepper says about this particular parable. And I want us to hear this. Here's what Culpepper says. He says, the tenants did not start out to take the vineyard from its owner. They only wanted to keep its produce for themselves. They did not set out to commit murder. The first servant they only beat and sent away empty-handed. What is Culpepper saying? Culpepper is saying this. They didn't start out as being murderous, these tenants. You know what they wanted at first, likely? They just wanted to kind of, I don't know, have some fruit, make some produce, grow a, grow a grapes, right? That's what you grow in a vineyard, isn't it? Do we really not know? Thank you, good, yes. Yeah. So they just wanted to grow, right? That's what they wanted. They just wanted to do this. And then, you know what? They started really liking that. And then they started thinking likely, oh, you know, this is a lot of work. And, and so then they wanted, you know, they were like, well, I kind of want to keep all of this actually to ourselves. We don't want to give any of this away. And so then they, then they beat, then they beat an insult, then they wound, then they kill. They don't just start here, right? You don't just start saying we want to kill. It has been this fascinating process where they've moved and before you know it all of a sudden they have blood on their hands these religious leaders they didn't just start over here saying we don't see you jesus you're not really you're not really a god you're not really the messiah they don't start by saying how in the world can we get this person to the right politicians to have him killed no 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 my guess is they started over here with good intentions and purposes and yet along the way they lost they lost the path Culpepper goes on, he says, you know, the theological language behind this, he says, you can find in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Here's what that says. It says, but one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when desire has conceived, it engenders sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. First of all, that's beautiful language of giving birth to death. It also is this sense of how long, right? I mean, nine months, right, in order to be able to give birth, right? I mean, there's this process again, but it begins with desires. It begins over here. What happened to the, to the tenants, what happened to the religious leaders was not that they had set long before, we just want to die, we want to kill. It was that they did not pay attention to those desires. Because it's the desires that then turn us towards temptation. And when we give into that, we go into sin. And after a while, sin then leads to death. 
And so the message today, the thing I wanted us to wrestle with is this sense of how much are we paying attention to our desires. And whether or not those desires are leading to life or leading to death. I want to assert that my guess is most of us, when it comes to our desires, we don't think that much about them. We just know that they are. Most of us, when it comes to desires, we just think, well, that's just kind of natural. Whatever that desire is, it's just, it's just who I am. It's what the kind of person I am, and, and it's just good and right. We just follow these desires. It's a desire. It is what it is. And we rarely ever think about the fact that desires are not static, that desires are actually shaped in remarkable ways, oftentimes outside of us. David Foster Wallace, he ha- he's talking about worship here, but I actually think it's very much akin to what I'm talking about, about desires. And he says this. He says, the insidious thing about these forms of worship, and again, I would say about desire, is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into. Day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that is what you are doing. In other words, I think far too often we begin to just think about sin and we think about that, right, which is important. But the question is, do you go back and do we begin to question our desires and what are we desiring and why is it that we are desiring this? And what are those things in our lives that are impacting what we desire? So, for instance, uh, I've used these analogies before, at least a couple of them. Uh, McDonald's. Um, uh, Growing up, when I was a kid, uh, you know, when I would go to McDonald's, I like a cheeseburger. I still do. I like a cheeseburger with just meat and cheese. That's all I want. But back in the day, when you went, you didn't make special orders, right? You just got the cheeseburger that they made, right? And it had ketchup on it. And and I hated ketchup. I still hate ketchup, right? Now you could do a special order, but I am telling you here to tell you that you would wish that you had not because the look that they gave and how long it took and you knew it had been spat upon, no question about it. So what did you do? I took the cheeseburger, I got a bunch of napkins and you scraped it off. But what I knew was that What I wanted was not actually most important, right? That there was this whole kind of communal thing, right? Like you just got the cheeseburger and you just shut up and you just took that ketchup off and you just went with it, right? This is just kind of what happened. You, You didn't have any power to kind of get exactly what you wanted. I was thinking about that earlier this week. We were talking about uh, music. I don't know how Megan and the girls had been talking about Aaron Neville. Megan doesn't like Aaron Neville. I love Aaron Neville. And there was a song released in 1989, uh, um, um, I don't know much. You know that song? But I know I love you. Yeah, yeah. It's a great song, right? Linda Ronstad, right? It's so good, right? And so, I, and so uh, after we talked about this, I started playing it on my phone. And of course, the girls, you know, like, oh, this is the worst. You know, secretly they loved it, right? But, but, 
But you know what, I, when, as I was remembering this, I was remembering, you know how I was able to hear it again and again because I hated spending money on things. Was I waited, right? I think it was at 8 o'clock. I think they had a top 8 at 8 on WBBM down in Mobile, Alabama. Uh, uh, and, and I had my, you, you know, you had your two fingers, one on record, one on play. And as soon as that one hit, right, because of course it was number one a lot because it was an amazing song, you just hit it and recorded it and then you could listen to it all the time, right? But that was the only way. But of course, this week when I wanted to listen to this song, what did I do, right? I just Googled it and all of a sudden, boom, there it is, right? And it's just right there. I didn't have to wait until 8.14 until they finally played it. I didn't have to wait until any of those things, right? It was, just, it was just there. It's so simple with YouTube or Spotify, whatever else it may be, right? You, you, you have it right there, right at your fingertips, or Starbucks, this is one I've often used. You know, I've always loved the chai at Starbucks. And I've said before, you know, I loved, I used to always get the grande vanilla, non-fat, no water, chai tea latte, right? And it was just so good. And I, yeah, it used to be really complicated, but this day and age, it's not complicated because people, you know, get things that are like 50 words long and it's insane, right? But, but I get this, right? And I love it and it's perfect for me, right? But, 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 but here's what's happened. Because of that, as I said before, when you have your Starbucks and you come into the, doors of this church that you, you don't leave the cup and you don't leave the way that that shaped you you don't you don't leave it there you bring it in here with you and you've been able to listen to whatever song you want whenever you want it you've been able to have the burger you want whenever you want heck they'll even deliver it to you now right you have the drink however you want it and you begin to desire that more because that's just what's in the water and you hardly even notice it. So that when you come in, it feels good and right that you should want the kind of music that you should want. And that they should play that. And that the kind of sermon should be the kind of sermon that you would like. That kind of pushes you a little bit, but not too much. Right? The service should be about as long as you want. The people who are here should kind of look like you and they should certainly believe exactly like you. And why not? Because if they don't, you can always either go to another church where that's true or you can just simply go on a Facebook page or wherever else, you know, where it's people who will just simply say exactly what you already believe and agree with. And all of a sudden, you have these desires that are just compounded by what keeps coming around you. So you just say, this is the way it should be. It is my desire. And you never begin, we rarely begin to say, wait, what? What's the gift in there actually not being a song that I like and having to listen to it? Because this, this crazy person over here loves Aaron Neville. Or what about what, you know, this sermon? Why should I have to sit here and listen to this kind of sermon? I can easily go someplace else or even better, I can just watch it from home and I can find the greatest preachers of all time. Or why should I have to be in a community? Why would I, world, would I be with people who don't agree with me on everything and then I have to have discussions and I might even have to compromise? Why should I do that? I have no desire to do that. Because the culture of which we are a part, it simply continues to engage. So the question is not, my, 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 my point here is not that we should go back where I have to scrape off ketchup. That's not going to happen. But it is to say, are we paying attention to the ways that our desires are being shaped? Or do we just think this is just the way it is? 
You see, I think, you know, when you go back to these religious leaders and we see them and we can just kind of talk about where they are right now, like, oh my goodness, they have this whole conversation. All they care about are the people, what the people think. They've really lost their way. This is just, this is just embarrassing. But let's go back here, right? Let's go back to these desires. Again, my guess is their desires here were, were from the beginning where we want to we be, you know, we, we, we want to see God. We want to be a part of this. But somehow that desire began to change. You know, I, I actually understand it. I, you know, I, um, when I first came out of seminary, like most kind of young pastors, like I had this, this great sense. I want to I be bold, and I, I know what the church, I know the ch- where the church is wrong. They've gone astray, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach this gospel right, and, and I'm going to say this is exactly what Jesus wants, and it's going to be amazing, right? And, and, and the people are going to be like, yay, finally! It only takes a few weeks for that not to be the case. Now, some of that, please let me hear you, some of that is good and right. Because when I came out, of course, I thought, I got this whole thing figured out. I know what God wants. And there is a part that is simply humbling. There is good, healthy criticism. Please hear me. Where pastors are questioned to say, okay, yeah, you know what? Maybe I was speaking more for me than I really was for God. So some of that is really good. Some of it is probably less healthy. The point, though, is this. No matter what, there comes a time when, if you're not paying attention, what you begin to ask consciously or subconsciously is, do I want to really preach what I think Jesus is saying, or do I want this next week to be a nice week for me? It's very natural. And if there's enough time, after you hear enough things from people, your desires begin to change, and you may not even be aware of. Or what about giving Caesar to Caesar what is Caesar, God what is God's, right? I mean, this has got, you know, so much to do, of course, even many look at this when it comes to politics and the church and our faith. These religious leaders, they were kind of assigned by Pontius Pilate, so they're pretty smart. And my guess again is, much like people who go into, people of faith who go into politics, that there's a sense that when you begin, you have, your desires really are, look, I, I want to bring Jesus. I, wa- I, want, I want Jesus, because Jesus should have an impact on, on how we run our government and how we do politics. And that is absolutely true. I was listening to an author earlier uh, this past week who was talking to a well-known uh, religious uh, leader who's also very deep into politics and and, and, the, and the author was kind of, you know, uh, uh, he was like, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't understand um, um, uh, this particular person, this pundit and, and, and many of his friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. They had this, this person, uh, this politician whom they, whom they used to really love and was, is a Christian brother and, 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 and was a friend of theirs. And, and just not long before, they started really kind of booing him. And it was clear that they had turned this back on him. And so the author said, I'm so confused. What happened? How, you know, that you love this person. And they were, you know, uh, they're Christian, they're still your friend. Like, how did this happen? And the, the religious pundit, the Christian brother said, you know, this is just politics. Which means, you know, all of a sudden then, it's fascinating, but, 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 but they've been able to kind of separate their, 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 their politics from their faith, which is interesting, right? Because at first they bring this faith in and they, they say, this is what we want. And that means, of course, you can do everything. Let me, let me say this. You, you, you can't kind of get what Jesus wants to by whatever means you want to. The ends do not justify the means. And even if you think, oh, well, we're going to bring the kingdom of God here through politics, it matters how you do those politics. 
Because our desires, inevitably, if we are not careful, those desires will lead to ways. And all of a sudden then, you are far off the path that you had set out upon. And I've seen this on the religious right, and I've seen it on the religious left. All of these things can begin to shape our desires. And the question is, are we mindful of the ways in which our desires are being shaped. James K.A. Smith talks about this a lot. I've used him before. I really, really appreciate him. And he says that, you know, we'll be mindful. And as we get into Lent, maybe this would be a good thing for you to think through, is to do a liturgical audit of our lives. And basically by that, what he simply means is that you begin to think through What are those things that are influencing my desires? It's not a question of whether something is influencing your desires. The question is, what is it that is influencing those things? And are they things that are actually helpful to you or not? So we can begin to do that, right? We can begin to do that with our consumer mentality. We can, you know, what's important to me, you know, that I should be able to get everything that I want. How is that affecting your own faith? How is that affecting your own journey? We can do that with politics. We have a great opportunity. I'm going to try to talk about politics right now uh, uh, because uh, then I get in less trouble than if I do it in several months from now. But I want you to pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on. Pay attention to the candidates. Listen to them. Are they making enemies that we should not love out of everyone who disagrees with us? Because if they are, that is not helpful for your soul. In what ways are they simply peddling fear that then cultivates anxiety, which will never help you in your path toward being with the Prince of Peace? And are they, and I'd say this is most important because quite frankly, it is oftentimes our Christian brothers and sisters who are most the traitors in this. Are they saying if we don't win this, Christianity in America is doomed? Remember, Jesus is days away from giving up all power and going up on a cross. Whether or not Whatever happens to America, ultimately, I am here to tell you, it is up to God. That doesn't mean that we can't go. That doesn't mean that we can't participate. That doesn't mean any of those things. But do not allow us ever to think that what is most important to Jesus is that we have power. Earthly power. What are those ways, paying attention, what are those ways? Ways in which we are being shaped. But now here's the other part of that, which is that not only do we need to do a liturgical audit of just saying, what ways am I being shaped so that we can make sure that we are, our desires are going in the right direction, but I also want us to be mindful of this. We actually, again, James K.A. Smith talks about this. We have a remarkable ability to actually change our desires. Let me go back to Starbucks real quick. Not literally, but just here. 
I have always loved chai, right? It's always really good. At some point, several years ago, I started drinking chai less and coffee more uh, because of the fact that I wanted to retire and I just could not keep spending six or seven dollars on a chai. And so I started doing more coffee, okay? And so I, I do a little bit more coffee now, uh, but I always like coffee with uh, uh, cream and sugar, right? And that was easy enough, you know, you'd go and, uh, you know, I'd say, okay, just, uh, you know, give me my coffee. They give me my coffee. I'd go over to the little bar and I'd put in my little two raw sugars and I'd put in a, a little bit of cream and it was all great. Then of course, COVID, right? And so what happened during COVID at Starbucks? The bar was out, right? No, you, they, you had to tell them this is exactly what I wanted, right? So I had to say, okay, I want, you know, cream and cream and sugar. Now here's the problem. I don't like very much cream. Don't like very much cream. And my wife used to be a Starbucks barista, so I'm just going to, you know, hear, hear me. Uh, uh, but baristas don't seem to understand what not much cream means. Right? I'd say, you know what? And so I started, like, you know, I just went just, just a little bit. And they'd be like, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> there you go. And I'm like, oh, gosh. Right? So I started using other words, you know, just a splash. Just a splash of cream, right? And sure enough, it was a splash. But it was like, psh, psh. it was a massive. And so I got so frustrated. I said, this is the worst. I don't like it. It ruins it, right? And so, so then finally I said, okay, you know what? Oh, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get it on the side. So I said, can I get some cream on the side? And again, as a former Starbucks barista, that really annoyed my wife. She's like, that's a waste. It's dumb. Don't do that. It's, you'll be the annoying customer. But I was like, whatever. There's so many annoying Starbucks customers. This is fine. And so she said, it's going to be great, right? So I did. And it was. It was perfect. But even then, I'd ask, can you give me just a, just a little bit of cream in a, in a cup? And even then, they couldn't do it, right? With all the cream, I could feed a colony of cats with all the cream that they would give me. And so finally, I said, I can't do it. Can't do it anymore. So I said, you know what? Just, just two, two packets of raw sugar. That's it. And I take a drink. And I'm like, all right. But I kept doing that. And the longer I did it, the more I began to enjoy it. And after a while, I, you know, I would go home. And even if I went home and I had the coffee, I wouldn't put cream in it. And I was like, I kind of like it like this. This is kind of good. Now, before you see, I would have told you, you're either like a cream and sugar kind of guy or you're just a sugar kind of guy or, or, or you're just, you know, I like it black. You know, that's the way I like it. And, 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 and what I realized, though, is actually because of this practice that was almost forced on me, this different habit, all of a sudden, my desires began to change. Our desires are not static. And a part of worship, James K.A. Smith says, a part of worship is to reform those desires. What does that mean? It means this. When we come in and we practice confession or when you, conf when you confess on your own, here's what's fascinating. And it doesn't happen the first time. Just like that first time that I didn't have any cream and I was like, oh, bitter. This is bitter. But the more you do it, you see, because what confession counters is the sense that we have to feel like everything is perfect in our lives. We have to, uh, it's this great expectation which weighs us down and we have to act like to everyone else and everything's great. And as you begin to practice confession more and more, your desire for this fake life begins to decrease and your desire for being honest and confession begins to increase. Generosity, this practice of generosity. Again, sometimes when you're beginning generosity, it's like, mm, this is bitter. This is hard. I've earned this. I own this. 
And yet, so often as you begin to practice generosity, you begin to see, I had no idea. I thought, I thought that joy was going to come when I kept doing more stuff with the money that I have for me. But actually, I'm beginning to see how fun it is to be able to change someone's life. Reading scripture, right? Reading scripture and beginning to see, right, how, how the Lord is speaking to you. All of a sudden, it begins to change our understanding. You know, we oftentimes like to, like to think that, 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 that we can just find our own path. That's really what's best. I will be happy. I know myself better than anyone. I'll be happy if I just follow my own path. And yet, what you begin to see is that you begin to desire more to follow scripture. The longer that you practice it, because you begin to see this is life that really is life. Slowing down, what we talk about so often here, it counters this false narrative that all of us, almost all of us, including myself have, which is this sense that why I'm important, why I matter is because I'm busy. That's why I'm significant. And all of a sudden, when you begin to slow down, you begin to desire more to live life with margin so that you then can actually see what is in front of you. You can see Jesus in your midst, unlike if you are simply running from one thing to the next. In a week and a half, we're going to start Lent. And my encouragement to you in that space is to think through this. Maybe it's a liturgical audit. Maybe you just want to say, I've never really thought about the influence that everything has, right? We've talked about this, the influence of living in a community where people seem to have everything, where they're always going to great places, all these things. And again, I am not suggesting you go back to hamburgers with ketchup. This is the reality. My only question here of this audit is to pay attention to it and to know it is shaping you or to ask at least how it's shaping you. And or perhaps to simply begin to engage in a different kind of liturgy. One practice one habit that may at first on, you know, Ash Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday may feel bitter. And yet the longer you begin to do it, perhaps the more you begin to notice inside your heart a desire to go in that direction further and further. May we pay attention to our desires. Because in so doing, we can help to ensure that the path that we're on is one that is growing closer and closer to life in Jesus. Rather than in a life where we will wonder, how did we ever get here? May it be so. Amen? And let's pray. God, be with us. Help to manage. Help us to see. Give us the eyes to understand where it is that we are struggling where it is that our desires are coming from. Help us just simply to be mindful of these. That in so doing, we might be able to cultivate desires that draw us closer to you so that we can see where you are in our life. Amen.